most of us don't want to be, you know, Dorcas Magnus carrying around our 20 inch leather sheet scabbard on the side of our dress pants while we get in and out of whatever car we're driving going off to work each day. So the folder, the, the genre is a compromise right from the get go. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to unpack the compromise a little bit. I wanted to back away from the compromise. I never, ever in my life, I mean, I, I probably own 10 Swiss pocket, Swiss army, you know, Victor Knox pocket knives. I never in my life want that knife ever. And I have 10 of them. Yeah. It, it, because they are what they are is they're an out of the way knife that doesn't get in the way and it's out of the way. And it's a little tiny compromise when I need it. But for the most part, Whenever I want a knife, it is some big honking thing I got to do a job with. So I just said, well, let's make the knife that I really want and let's make the fixed blade that I really want in my pocket that just so happens that the only compromise is that it bends in half. That's the only compromise. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an amazing, exciting guest lined up for you today. This gentleman was introduced to me by another of our podcast guests, Curtis Ayavito from Spartan Blades USA. He is the iconoclastic, incredibly brilliant, genius, visionary behind the company that is Medford Knife and Tool. I am speaking, of course, of the one, the only, the legendary Greg Medford. Welcome to the show, Greg. Hey, man, what's going on? I, I'm not even sure what to say after that. <laughs> intro. I feel like I should just bow and walk off stage. <laughs> well, what can I say, man? At this show, one of the things we go for is to make great introductions of our guests. Done accomplished. <laughs> Thank you. So Greg, you know, uh, I've gotten to know you over the past month or so. I called you up because Curtis said Greg Medford's a cool guy. You know, he's got some 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 opinions. He's pretty smart. You, you're going to want to put him on your show. So I said, okay, let me check this guy out. I checked you out. I went and I bought one of your knives, a Medford Proxima. I've become a bit of a knife collector in the, in the last little while. I love my Proxima. And what what I've seen is that you are a true thought leader when it comes to knife making because you're someone who who, who took the art of knife making and you put uh, your own genius, your own vision of what it takes to make a great knife. And as a result, Medford Knife and Tool is an iconic company. I mean, your prices aren't cheap, yet people are lining up to buy your knives. Okay, so I know you've got a lot of gold to give to our listener because our listener is a business person, is a, is a man or a woman who's in business. They, they want to make a difference with their vision. They want to help people. They want to make some money. They want to take care of their families. So for them to really be able to listen to you and take your advice, they got to get to know you first. So tell us, how'd you get to be the great Greg Medford? Well, I'll tell you, man, it's an alignment of planets. My grandfather came off the boat from Greece. His wife was an old French-Canadian-American family here during the Revolution. On the other side of the family, West Texas, 
South Carolina, been here since before the American Revolution. So I got two kind of old American families of just kind of rogue, do your own thing kind of blood in me. So I've got Nicotopolis, Greek on one side from the Peloponnese of Greece. And on the other side, I've got this just kind of rugged West Texas, Irish, you know, kind of rogue independence, go west. I mean, they were going west when the west was the undiscovered and, and, and it was the Indian territories, you know. So I think I've got just something in my blood. It's it's not the wanderlust, but it's to basically do, you know, kind of do your own thing. I live in this state. I think the place where we are, it's the polarity in which our magma as a human starts to solidify, you know. And I grew up here, this in between California and in between Texas. And in the 60s and 70s, you know, Texas was kind of this rough and tumble, you know, last bastion of America. And, Cal- and California was this kind of, you know, golden orange growing farming Hollywood hope. And and it's just changed so much. But Arizona's this really unique hybrid right in the middle. So I'm I'm kind of born out of this pragmatism, practicality, rogue independence, you know, don't be stuck by tradition. Tradition's a place we use for a reference and from which we leap into the unknown, not a place that should tether us from growth. And so that's probably the kind of zeitgeist behind who I am. And, you know, my dad's definitely more of a kind of conformist. My my mom is just straight up rogue. She's like, does her own thing, doesn't care what the government thinks. I mean, she's not like a law breaking, you know, she's not like a renegade, you know, Mel Gibson character from Road Warrior or something. She's just, if the apocalypse came, my mom would, you know, she'd be like, okay, well, we got the apocalypse here. Here's what we'll do next. And she's just this really rogue independent do her own thing and i got a lot of that from her side of the family and then my dad's side of the family is just this you know crafty mechanically inclined and and kind of you know like anti-authoritarian like right close to being bank robbers kind of mentality and so all of that is a good mix for being an entrepreneur and and so when i got into the knife making it was really a matter of you know i i had done this huge, everybody always asks me like, you know, how'd you land on this? And if you, you know, stop me if you like want to push me in a different direction. But I basically did this gigantic Excel spreadsheet of everything that you buy, sell, use, touch, see in modern life. And then I rated everything on the list. And I mean like window, glass, sword, door, doorknob, handle, button, lock, phone, measures, measuring stick, spoon, cow. I mean, everything your eyes could lay on, I just put it into a spreadsheet. And then I rated them all one to five. How much did I personally assess Americans cared if it was American made or if there was a case to be made for American made where they'd care? I rated everything and, and it, I came up with this short list. Like if it didn't matter, like people don't care where their napkins come from. No. People don't care where their disposable stuff typically comes from. Not at all. And so it's the things that last a long time. Your most durable hard goods are the things your life relies on or the things that you're most engaged in tactily where people start to care the most. Almost where they like have a relationship with the implement. So cars, they do care partially, but so much of a car is intangible and unseen Car makers are finding out how much they can get away with not being American-made where people don't care, right? Airplanes, they really care. They care that it's made here because they're like, yeah, you know, maybe you can get some good stuff made other places. But I know here 
the government and everybody is making sure they don't get off the reservation. No one's cutting corners. And I'm just going to go with American made because it's like me and my family's life. And I don't care what the cost is. American made. Fair enough. So, so anyways, I just went through and assessed all these things. And I ended up looking at like firearms, cutlery, aircraft components. There were a few other things on the list. And then there was a whole second tier of kind of marginal things where I thought maybe I could make the case in my marketing that you should care if it's American made. And, and then I just kind of narrowed the list down and said, you know, what would I mind not, you know, what would I not mind doing 60 or 70 hours a week for several years? And it ended up coming down to a very short list of things. And then it was like, which one has the least amount of government involvement? And then which one has the least supply chain problems and which has the least amount of regulation? And he ended up at knives. And I, I drew 20 knives, invited over a bunch of Marine buddies and laid the drawings out on the pool table with some free beer and said, hey, man, what do you guys think? And and I said, well, I, I rented a shop, so I'm starting a knife company. And everybody, they were like, what? And that's how it happened. That, you know, that's really kind of what got me going. And then my design ethos is around, you know, I don't want to do what everybody else is doing. So if you look at the top companies in the business, their products all look very, very, very similar and kind of homogenous to me. And I just didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do my own thing. So I don't look at other companies. I don't look at what they do. I don't look at new technology popping out on in knives per se. You know, I go to manufacturing conferences. I go to trade shows on manufacturing metallurgy technology. I mean, I, you know, I do all kinds of stuff for ideas, but I don't look at knives. I'm actually somewhat ignorant about knives and knife makers. And, you know, guys say, oh, my favorite knife maker is this guy. And I just have this deer in the headlights blank look on my face and I'm not being insulting. I'm like, as a designer, I on purpose don't look at other people's stuff. So that's kind of how I ended up where I'm at. And it's why the kind of design aesthetic of my company is in a kind of branch of the knife making world that's probably, you know, pretty unique and different and independent from everybody else. It is completely unique. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that right now. So there, there, there's a lot of gold that you gave us in that piece, which I, I want to unpack. Okay. So first of all, you talked about your background. I myself am an immigrant from Iran. I'm a Christian from the Middle East. I lived in Greece for two years. So it's really cool when I meet a Greek, a person with Greek background, right? Because I got to spend a lot of time in Greece and, and Greece is a wonderful place and the Greek people are awesome. And, and you've got that background, background of French Canadian. I'm, I'm in Canada. So <laughs> I've got a bit of that in common with you. And, and then you've got, as you said, the West Texas, South Carolina, hard scrabble background too. So you've got people who are crafty and good craftsmen and you've got people who are devil may care entrepreneurial types. And all of that was powerful. All of that uh, helped shape you into who you are. And you served time in the military, did you not? Yeah, I did. Which branch were you in? Marine Corps. Awesome, awesome. So did that at all reflect on your thinking of getting into the knife-making business? You know, not really. You know, you'd think it would. I, I, this is kind of weird. Like, guys, if they come see me, you know, if they're around me, they'll go, oh, he must be a military guy because it's kind of my bearing, right? If you walk through my facility, if you go into my office, you could tell I'm a military guy uh, or at least a patriot. You probably could tell I'm a Marine pretty quickly if you have you know, half a brain, but I don't like wear that around on my chest. It's no badge of anything for me. It doesn't cut me any privilege. I'm embarrassed by the entitlement class of veterans. You know, I'm like, look, we're not entitled to anything. We volunteered, we got paid and our country spent trillions of dollars making sure we had helicopters and mash hospitals to take care of us. 
So no disrespect to my fellow veterans. I'm embarrassed by the making of veterans into an entitlement class or into making them into a charity class. I did it. And, you know, when I see guys that are on the dole, I'm like, dude, you know, there's guys missing legs who have real problems. Um, let's leave some money for them and go get a job. So I'm, I'm really, I don't, it's for me, it's no entitlement. You know, I look at Curtis and Mark from Spartan and those guys, I don't want to say heroes. I'm not a hero worshiping dork like that, but they're like American patriots who did it for a profession for an entire career. I was some dude who was in for four years, did my time as an infantry guy and decided I love the idea of the Marine Corps more than I liked the Marine Corps. I liked the idea of the guys more than I liked the organization that the guys were in. I loved having a built-in group of you know, brothers and friends. It was great. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, it was a nice launch into adulthood. Um, but I wasn't a great fit. You know, I'm like a meritocracy. You know, like I don't care if you're the boss of a company. If that guy on his third day on the job walks up and tells you how to save money, you're a fool not to listen to him. And that and and the opposite is true in the military. And I was not wired for it. So huge patriot, huge critic of my country, absolute adoration, love and respect for the Marine Corps was not a great fit for my kind of rogue, independent individuality. And, and so, you know, here's how it informed me. And this is the only way. Like I'm a, I'm a maker. I make stuff. I was making airplanes and flying airplanes and making my own stuff before I got into this business. And I like tools. I'm a tool user. So I know how Marines use tools. So in that regard, I make a tool that they're probably going to like a little bit more because I'm a dude actually making stuff I'm really going to use. So it probably jives with them, but it doesn't inform me. What informs me is a lifetime of using tools and relying on things and, you know, hiking and camping and backpacking, horseback riding and, and making airplanes. And, um, and also, you know, uh, my friends dying in crashes in airplanes over little simple mistakes or things that broke or parts that developed cracks or, you know, catching stuff like that on my airplanes that were broken and cracked over over years of use, it informed how I want something to be, which is over-engineered, rugged, not breakable, eminently reliable, simple in form, and a balance of form and function, not not driven by form, but really driven by function, and then balancing form for the ergonomics in the hand. You know, and that kind of did, that's the design undercurrent of me and my company. And, and that's how the military informed me, this rugged practicality. There's no like cutlery expertise I got from being a Marine. And I would argue any dude, any pipe hitting tier one dude or any gunslinger is zero qualifications to be a knife maker. Zero, none, zip. Anyone says I'm a Navy SEAL, so you should buy my knife. It's the dumbest statement ever. Wow. Uh, They're unrelated. It's unrelated. Yeah. I can get that. The skills required to be uh, a knife maker are different than the skills required to go out there and, uh, you know, take out bad guys. Yeah, they're in total contretemps to each other. In fact, a matter of fact, you know, I, you know, what's more important? Being a metallurgist and a plumber. So having a chemistry degree and being a plumber qualifies you more to be a knife maker than anything else. Hmm. Because Do plumbers tell. use an amazing variety of tools. They solve an amazing amount of problems. 
they deal with chemistry, and then a chemist understands how metals interact with one another and the process of making and transforming carbon in metal. So, it, like, if everyone says, what qualifies you to be a knife maker? Well, nothing. Knife making qualifies you. What informs me, you know, I got a pretty strong chemistry background. I got a pretty strong mathematics background. I have a very critical thinking background, you know, formal education-wise. You know, degree in philosophy and theology, right? You talk about, you know, what what qualifies me to be a knife maker. It's that I've made a bunch of knives and I've broken a bunch of them, and I've been using tools my whole life. You know, one of my first jobs was as a farrier's assistant, shoeing horses. Wow! And I, yeah, I worked on a ranch when I was a kid on the summers a few times, and then I worked around my dad's plumbing company. You know, people say, oh, man, where'd you get the idea for that? I'm like, well, because I put it in my hand and pushed really hard. And <laughs> it, everywhere where it felt weird, I got rid of. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, so I guess what makes you good as a knife maker is you, there are a lot of dudes out there making knives. And so this is my uh, critique for what it's worth and it ain't worth anything. You get what you pay for around here. Sure. Uh, my critique on the modern knife industry is it is overloaded with non-tool users who draw stuff in SolidWorks and AutoCAD and have it made, and it's never been put in a hand to see if it's a good tool for a man. Yeah. And that's the predominant production knife. Hmm. Never, and, and never thought me. of it that way. Yeah, I mean, these kids wear lumberjack shirts and skinny jeans and their hips are $400 sneakers and their and their and their beards with the perfect quaffed beard oil who are sitting at these beard amazing <laughs> Apple Apple computers drawing these amazing knives and and with their engineering degrees they haven't been using tools. You got to get out in the field and use tools. You got to push, pull, pry, twist and see how stuff feels in your hands. When I I can look at a knife in in 1 second and go was made without being tested in a human hand prior to uh, production. Hmm. Yeah, I, I've got about 40 knives in my collection right now, right? And yep. uh, 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 there's some that I really, really like. I think they're well-designed. They're usable tools, as you put it. And there's yep. some which, you know, are nice to look at. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah, and, and that's, that's, you know, look, look, here's the reality. We make jewelry. We make jewelry that's occasionally functional and the vast majority open mail. That's it. That's all there is to it. People can say, oh, 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 not me, not me. Bullshit. You make jewelry. We make jewelry. Nobody in modern life really needs a knife except for a few adventure uh, guides, some hunting guides, some hunters, and people who live in Alaska. The rest of us are city, city dwellers. For the most part, we don't need any of this stuff. That's it. But we also have 20 pairs of shoes, and you only need you know one or two, right? Yeah. So it, it's not about need. It's about want. And it's, and, and it's not always about today. It's about what if. So I'm in the business of want. I'm in the business of what if. And I'm in the business of if it is going to be used, let's make damn good and sure that it's ruddy enough to take real use and real work. And, you know, that, that's kind of my – I guess that's a matrix for which all my doodles and my, my, my uh, designs come from. I, I love that you use the word matrix right now. One of the things we teach inside of the work that we do, um, th there, there's a couple of different things that I do, but I have a program for people I call thought leaders and heart leaders, right? So people who have 
uh, an expertise that they're really good at. We help them become known and sought after for it. And people who, who you know, they, they lead from the heart. They want to make a difference for people. They're, they're not just in it for, for the money. They're not people that have what one of my friends and mentors calls commission breath. You ever heard that phrase before? I have not. Yeah, it's a good one, right? Just somebody who will get the sale no matter what. They couldn't care less about you, what your needs are, right? Uh, and it's important from my perspective for someone to understand how to position themselves, right? And there's this concept which we learned called a positioning matrix, which is all around taking you as an expert, as a thought leader, and putting your expertise and how you talk about it in like nine different quadrants in this matrix. And you just use the word matrix to talk about your philosophy of knife making. I kind of like that. I think it's nice. There's a good synchronicity there. Well, you know, there's this, you know, you can tell, you can look at knives and you can tell what company a guy likes. You can tell who he learned to make knives from. You know, I spent a lifetime doing things with my hands. When I teach someone how to fly an airplane, I can tell a lot about them by the way they learn the process. Because there's a lot of data to process, a lot of information to process, and there's immediate feedback. I taught martial arts for years. I could tell in teaching martial arts, I knew enough people privately in their private lives as well as in the student environment. You start to see these parallels. And I was able to, in one hour with somebody, I could tell kind of how they interact with their kids, probably how they interact with their wife, how they interact with their boss, how they respond to trauma, how they respond to drama, how they respond to, you know, life's daily stuff. And I see the same thing with knives. My wife saw it for years. She goes, man, how'd you know that? I go, well, because he responds this way. And I've seen this before. People do certain things with their body and they they do the same or they respond to instruction or being guided. You know, our, our body kind of reflects our brain. It's all connected, right? Yeah. So the same thing with knives. You could tell when you look at guys' knives, like what is informing them. And so when I talk about the design matrix, I I think about this like multivariable kind of ecosystem of everything that is me. And, you know, every human being is this. We are all some kind of total sum of our the ecosystem that is us, you know, yeah. uh, parents, genetics. It's the story of the ancient Greek tragedies being outplayed in us and, and, and played out in us in every moment. How much of us is our genetics, the gods versus free will and determination, our actions, right? And, and, and I see it with knife making. Like I see it, guys that they make knives and they love my knives. And I go, well, no shit. I can see that looking at your knives. They look like spinoffs of my knives, right? Or also I see other guys' knives and I don't need to talk to him. I go, oh, and you can tell he's informed by this type of knife, this company, these knives are what he likes. And if you get to where you talk to him, you find out, yeah, that I did carry SOG knives when I was a kid. And I, I like SOG knives and I worked at SOG knives or Gerber or, you know, insert any company's name. And I just didn't want to do that. I just wanted to, I try to stay really raw. So it's kind of weird. I, tr- I know it sounds kind of weird, but I try to just channel what's going on in me, in my designs and in my knife making. And that's a little tiny wedge of what I do. That's where I bring the kind of artistic hand or fingerprint of me to the company. And then the rest of the time, I'm just trying to be a business person who doesn't screw it up and has got a company growing beyond my skill set, how to grow into that skill set at each level and not be left behind by the success of the company or the team around me. 
So I'm trying to grow and evolve. And then I step back and I go into this weird creative space. I'm sitting in my create creative office right now with all of my talismans around me. All these things are the, I don't know, they're the matrix by which these little notions or ideas for the Praetorian or the Proxima or whatever knife I'm making kind of come to me. No, I, 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 lo- I love that. And, and you know, when you, when you speak about the design matrix, to me, it's a lot like the positioning matrix in that it's informed by everything about you. The whole ecosystem, as you called it, right, of Greg Bedford is everything you've ever experienced. You know, your background, your parents, your grandparents, you as a Marine, and the fact that you sit down there, you get into this creative space, you meditate maybe, you let the talismans work their magic, you let you let the ether inform you to get to the rawest, most authentic part of you, and then you come up with a design, right? And you don't want to look at any other knife maker because you don't want to be like them. I get that. And I'm holding your Proxima in my hand right now. And here's what, what's cool about the Proxima that's unlike any other flipper I've ever seen, right? So... First of all, you've got this little groove. The flipper tab. Sorry? Is it the flipper tab? The flipper tab's (laughs) different, but the thing that's, to me, struck me first is actually on the handle, this little groove for my index finger, right? And I, I have not seen a groove like that that's almost perfectly positioned for my index finger to be able to fit there ever before. Then the flipper tab sticks out. It's got some, some jimping on it. It's powerful. And then when you open up the knife, right, what's mm-hmm. powerful is – And while you're, while you're talking about it, I took mine out and I'm holding it in my hand, looking at it, grab it onto it while you're talking to me. Go okay, ahead. Okay, cool. So I'm doing the same thing. So we're both kind of doing the same thing at the same time. That's kind of cool. So then you, you, you see the, the point. The point's super, super sharp and the, the blade itself is sharp. But, you know, on, 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 on the spine, right, near the point – You've 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 done some beveling over there, and so it, it doesn't have an edge to it the way like the the blade does. But it shows me, wow, that that thing. If you stab something with it, that would just go in. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? There's not a whole heck of a lot that could stop this. Kevlar couldn't stop it, right? Not much can stop this. And I look at this and I go, anything I need to do with an EDC knife, this is going to do, and then some. If I'm ever, you know, caught in a situation, heaven forbid, where, you know, I'm, I'm under assault or attack, one of the reasons I, I, I became interested in, in, in knives and collecting is that a good friend of mine w- was, was murdered here in Toronto almost two years ago, right? He, someone walked over to him in a restaurant and pumped him full of lead. And to this day, they haven't caught the perpetrators. They don't know uh, why it was. There's been a lot of speculation about it. He was a business guy. You know, it, it, it was shocking, right? In Toronto, mm-hmm. there's like 60 mm-hmm. murders a year here. That, that, that's like that's like New York in a weekend or something, you know, Chicago in a weekend, right? But, yeah, yeah. But, but this guy, good guy, solid businessman, and boom, his world, his life completely changed, completely went into, uh, 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 into a, a space where his kids didn't have a father anymore. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I'm I'm sitting there depressed that one of my good friends has been murdered and going, how 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 do I how do I make sense of this? Cope. How do you cope? Yeah, how do I cope? How do I how do I how do I get out of my depression? 
Well, my good friend, Mark Von Muser, who I've told you about before, he's, he's the fellow who trained, uh, was in the Navy, he trained as a SEAL and all that good stuff. He told me about a guy by the name of Tim Larkin who, who teaches a program called Target Focus Training. It's all about, uh, you know, personal security, personal uh, defense. So I did that. That helped me cope. And then I, I'm watching a guy uh, by the name of Donald Miller. He's a best-selling author who created a marketing program called Story Brand. I started listening to his podcast. I bought his program, and he showed us the Gerber knife ad, right? So I don't own a Gerber knife, but I love the Gerber knife ad. It's a kick-ass ad. And this ad basically is one of the most masculine ads you'll ever see. It's called Hello Trouble. If, you, if you've never watched it, it's a cool thing to watch just to see like how they, how they thought about this. So he talked about him watching that ad made him want to buy a knife. And this guy is a city guy. You know, he's an egghead. He's a thinker. Yet he said, my God, I'm going to need that knife because maybe I'm going to be stuck uh, under a propeller boat with a rope uh, wrapped around my leg and I need a knife to cut myself free and live and all that stuff. And I watched this ad. I saw him talk. I bought my first knife. I went to the store. The guy says, don't buy a Gerber, right? And, you know, so I've never owned a Gerber. So I'd, I'd like to own one one time because they got me started in this. I kind of feel like, uh, <laughs> you know, I owe them for getting me into the knife collecting business. But I bought, I bought a Benchmade. You know, and it was a nice knife. And I thought, okay, this is pretty cool. I'm, I'm getting into this. I'm starting to learn about knives. And I still don't know anything, uh, you know, but I know a lot more than I used to. And, and when Curtis told me about you and the kinds of knives you make and the kind of person you are, I was intrigued. And when I got the knife in my hand, I first thought, man, this is bigger than any flipper I've ever owned. It's huge. It's, you know, hard to close my hand around it when the blade's closed. But then I started to use it a little bit. And I started to, to appreciate all the serious thinking that went into the design, the finger groove, the flipper tab, the, the power of the, of, of the blade, you know, the spine, how you design the spine, how this thing, you know, you remember that Crocodile Dundee movie when those, yeah. those kids went okay. up to him and they pulled out a knife and, and he says, oh, that's not a knife. Then he pulled out this big Bowie knife and said, oh, that's a knife. I'm like thinking, man, if I have a Medford with me, that would be that, right? This is a knife. Hey, what you got? That's you not know, a knife. It's, it's funny. You know, obviously, it's one of the biggest comments everybody makes is they go, God, these knives are so big. And I also have a lot of medium and smaller size knives. But here's what's interesting about it. When you're going to really use a tool, like you know you're going camping, you're going off to war, you know you're going hunting, you see the knives that guys pick and they're fixed blades and they are about the size of my pocket knives. They've got a full handle on them meant for good, strong working purchase of the human hand. They've got a blade of one or two styles. The blades are not little tiny. So, so I just feel like for me, I thought there were too many compromises in the everyday carry pocket knife. You know, like I got enough pockets. I can actually, what I really want when I take a knife out, I really want the big fixed blade that I use. Like, okay, I cook a lot. I'm really into cooking. I have cooking show. I love cooking. The number one knife I use is a full-size French or European-style chef knife. I, I use it for cleaning strawberries. I don't use the little tiny ladies pairing knife. Pairing is for people who are, uh, you know, like doing little finite things or they're shucking oysters, not for being a chef. I use my chef knife. And I use it for everything. And, and, you know, gals, their hands smaller, or maybe the big knife intimidates them. They have a tendency to gravitate towards the sandwich or the, or the pairing knife. I gravitate towards the French one. Whenever I have a knife, I opt for 
the full-size knife. Most of us don't want to be, you know, Dorcas Magnus carrying around our 20-inch leather sheet scabbard on the side of our dress pants while we get in and out of whatever car we're driving going off to work each day. So the folder, the, the genre is a compromise right from the get-go. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to unpack the compromise a little bit. I wanted to back away from the compromise. I never, ever in my life, I mean, I, I probably own 10 Swiss pocket, Swiss Army, you know, Vic Fernand pocket knives. I never in my life want that knife, ever. And I have 10 of them. Yeah. It, it, because they are what they are is they're an out-of-the-way knife that doesn't get in the way and it's out of the way and it's a little tiny compromise when I need it. But for the most part, Whenever I want a knife, it is some big honking thing I got to do a job with. So I just said, well, let's make the knife that I really want and let's make the fixed blade that I really want in my pocket that just so happens that the only compromise is that it bends in half. That's the only compromise. And that's what I did. And I was like, hey, you know what? Screw the pocket. I don't need the pocket. And as it turns out, it works out just fine. It's just a minor adjustment. So so that's kind of what got me. And And then, of course, since then, you know, you, you sell more pocket knives than you can possibly make for 10 years. I like, you know, I, I couldn't make an, I couldn't make enough knives. So that stifles innovation and creativity. Cause like, who am I to come up with new knives if I can't even deliver the, you know, 8,000 Praetorians that are on order? Yeah. Well, you start, you start to catch up and you build a company around it, which is what I've done. I kept designing new stuff and built a company around each product as it came along. And it just kind of organically turned into this, you know, we were a little tiny company, but in the knife world, we're a bit of a beast. And uh, it just turned this way because I'm focused on growth and newness, not on entrenching myself and not on cordoning off my ideas. You know, I'm constantly moving forward like a shark. I I love that about you. And, you know, what you just said, I want to unpack it a bit because there's some thought leadership in there as well. So you've thought very deeply about what a folding knife ought to be compared to a fixed blade, right? And mm-hmm. you, you've decided, I don't want to have any compromises over here. And the example you gave of the Victorinox Swiss Army knife is a great example. You know, we tell people, don't be the Swiss Army knife of the uh, thought leader or coaching world. Don't be the guy or gal who can do everything. Be someone who's known for doing one thing, right? Because nobody uses a Swiss Army knife for anything. Everyone's got one, but you don't actually use it because it's not its not something that does anything really, really, really well. It just does a whole bunch of different things, right? It's better yeah. to be the very best at something and be that person that when someone needs you to be the best at that something, whether you're like a a relationship counselor or you're a fitness trainer or you're a a business advisor, if you're the very best there is in that area and that's all you focus on, then you're going to be sought after. And that's our new logo. That's our new saying is we say be sought after. Medford Knives, you guys live that. You are sought after, right? Yeah, and I think it's to two ends of a paradigm. So the Victronox is an amazing, it's an amazing company concept and niche in the marketplace. hundred percent. It's, and, and, but for anyone else to try and be that when you're still at the try-in level, when you're still at the individual level, where you're still at the people know my name level, it's, you're, you're in the wrong end of the pool. Uh-huh. Uh, so if you're still an individual trying to individuate. If you're still an individual trying to define yourself, you're still an individual trying to make the leap. You're still an individual trying to make your splash. 
you can't think in those big terms. Those big terms are the purview of 50 years of work come before you or some amazing, you know, techno technological crossroads that you happen to be at the nexus of. But for the most part, you know, like, like I have a design for a thing called the American service knife. It's the ASK knife. It is a direct head to head, go right at Victor Knox's throat. But I have that in development parked. It is waiting for me to be the right size to be able to launch it because I can't go there and be all those things. Well, I'm getting there, but I probably need another few, I need, you know, I need another few years. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So I, I know what you mean though. Like guys say to me, Hey, I want to be in the knife business. Tell me what to do. I say, okay, I got a pad of paper right here and a pencil. I'd like you to draw. You got five minutes. Draw me eight knives. The planet has never, ever seen before that look different. And wow. Kind of looking at me. No pressure. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I tell it to guys all the time. Guys all the time ask me for knife business advice. And all, uh, young people also. And I say, okay, oh, hey, listen, you want to be in the knife business. Really cool. And they say, I like this knife and I like that knife. I go, you're just a knife collector. You like stuff. Go get a real job and collect this or sit down right now and draw me eight designs in five minutes. The planet has never seen before. And I've had a few guys actually sit down and try it. And eight minutes into it, they just look up and they're just like, holy dude. I go, that's what I have to do. I have 30 minutes scheduled a day to, that I have to bet my company's next year's future on. You have to be able to sit down and channel unique creativity. If you can't just flip that switch on and do this, this is not the business for you because this business is about moving forward and growth and change and evolution. And you can't just get lucky. Like I know dudes who get lucky. They make one knife. There's this dude out there. He made a knife. It looks kind of similar to my Praetorian actually. And he pulled up a whole company around it and then the company went away. Hmm. And, and why? Because he didn't actually design the thing. He just did a spin on my knife. I wasn't insulted. He even came to me and talked to me about it. And I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and said, hey, man, it's not the way I'd come out. But, you know, hey, do what you're going to do. It's a free country. And he's kind of had his teeth caved in. And, you know, my point is the most important thing is creativity and the ability to turn on the switch. If you can't turn on your creative switch, go get a job. Yeah, 100%. 100%. So one of the things that... Who was it? I think Eleanor Roosevelt said it. And I'm, I'm normally not a Roosevelt fan, but I, I really like this. She said, it's better to be a first-rate version of yourself than a second-rate version of somebody else. Oh, yeah. It's a great line. Absolutely yeah. true. Yeah. 100% Absolutely true. 100% true. And it, I, I get a lot of guff. You know, I get a lot of guff because I'm kind of polarizing and I say what's on my mind. And no, so you're just such a shy wallflower, Greg Medford. <laughs> but you know, you know what happens is about – I, so here's the way I kind of broke the math down on this, okay? Let's say there's about 330 million people in the U.S. About 165 million of them are kind of favoring my side of the political spectrum. About 165 aren't. Of that 165 that aren't, I think there's about a third of them that are just bat crazy lefty lunatics and they're never ever going to like me. They're not even thoughtful. So there's about 165 that I would call in my camp. And there's about a hundred million on the other side that are not in my camp. But of that hundred million, I think half of them are reasonably thoughtful. So that's 50 million. 
And then I've got my 165 million who may or may not like me because maybe they're Christian, really Christian, and they hear me drop the F-bomb or say <laughs> because I'm channeling a British hero. I, I, I may need to bleep and, you out a few times on this one, buddy. <laughs> oh, sorry. So so uh, the 165 million and the 50 million, that's my audience. And I just go, hey, I'm going to be true to myself. And what I find is uh, there are enough people open-minded in that crew that there's just more than enough people for me to do my thing. And And so I just kind of focus on that. I don't focus on... If I think about the swath of humanity of everyone, it's impossible to be somebody that's in in any way notable and not offend a third of humanity. It's impossible. I just I, I, every totally. way I look at it, because if if you don't if you're not offending a third of them, it means you're unnotable to the other two thirds. There's like a, there's zero note. Like there's not even enough for them to agree with. Let alone disagree and debate you. Man, I love that 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 word notable. It's powerful. We we just came up with our new slogan, which is be sought after, but I'm thinking be notable is a good one too. Use that so I'm gonna steal that from you, Greg. Um, Go ahead. So what you're saying is true. Some of the greatest leaders in our time are or they had people try to assassinate them. And these are some of the greatest men and women of our time. I mean, you think about, you know, Martin Luther King, right? Uh, amazing man. Gandhi, amazing man. Both shot to death. JFK, last Democrat I liked. <laughs> amazing man. <laughs> shot to death. You know, Ronald Reagan had a guy try to kill him. Uh, you know, anybody who has ever tried to make a difference in the world has 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 the people who love them and has the people who hate them. They, they, they have their champions and they have their detractors. That's just the way it is. You can't worry about what the world is going to think about you. You know, I, I'm not going out of my way to go offend anybody, right? That's not me. That's not my brand. That's not who I'm all about. But I am who I am. I make no apologies for it. And I'm here to make a difference for people, entrepreneurs. I'm looking for great men and women who have great programs, great products, great services. And what they're doing makes a difference for everybody else. And what I do is great. I help people like that get to a higher level. I'm good at it. But I'm not for everybody. Like you you and I said this before we actually started recording. You said, I'm not for everybody. I'm not for everybody either. And nobody's for everybody. In fact, it's what – it's your, it's the death knell of your creativity and of your business if you try to be for everybody. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah, I, because 25% of people are barely not flinging their own poo on the wall. So if you're for everybody, you're just the lowest common denominator. You should be I, – I, I just like – you know, I, I talk, to, talk to my kids about this. I go, look, man, if the planets have all aligned and you got lucky and you got some genetic juice and you got some family juice and you got some intelligence, I go, there's an awesome responsibility. We're one of the nodes. We're supposed to be a bright point. You know, George Bush said a thousand points of light. We're supposed to be one of the bright points. If you've got the, that alignment of planets in your makeup, then it is upon you to have a strong back and stand up in the tide of just mediocre, blah, non-thought, everyday grind of activity and rise above it and have everybody look. I mean, I know who goes to my website. I know who goes to my Medford University. I can see their IP addresses. 
there are a lot of people go and look. And the reason why is I'm not marching and doing what everybody else is doing. I'm, I'm doing my own thing and I'm trying to I take a big cue from Steve Jobs, not because he was a rich guy, not because of uh, I know of him because of his, his success. But here's what's unique about his success, because I know about Lee Iacocca also, and I know about lots of different CEOs. The reason I like Steve Jobs so much, he was unrelenting about quality customer experience, and he was unrelenting about connecting with people. And those are not CEO traits, typically. And so for me, um, you know, and I don't think of myself as a CEO until I've got, you know, maybe 100 employees or 75 employees. I'm more of a president of a little company. My, like, kind of my raison d'etre every day is I'm here running this company. How do I not get cloistered away and separate and turn into just some suit? How do I stay connected with everybody? And, and then in doing that, I sit down to draw a knife. Am I solving a problem for everyone or am I just stroking my pud, drawing another picture that some fucking engineer is going to crank into a part for me? Am I making somebody's life a little bit better? Are they going to like it better? Is this year's Praetorian a better version? So everything I do is just really driven towards oh, – so for instance, I'll give you a for instance, okay? If you open up – when you opened up your knife, when you got it in a box, I didn't see it. It went the normal way. You didn't get any special treatment. I'm sure you got a small white box or maybe yep. it was inside right another in box because right it's now. going to Canada. You open the box up. There's a bubble bag. You sl- slide the bubble bag away. There's this cool pelican case. You open the pelican case. And across the top, before you get to your knife, is this attention, Achtung in German. <laughs> yeah. Like, hey, knife nuts, read this. Okay. And, and so that – And I read it right probably, away before I open my – before I unbox the knife. I read it. Well, so here's what's funny. That's just like me. Um, it's an it's a warranty care and maintenance sheet, and it's in your face, and it's the opposite of what everybody does. What everybody does is they put it in the very very back behind all the stickers and the chotskis. They put a little six page little a six page little trifold brochure that you know care and maintenance warranty. And instead, I have mine right up front. Now, it does two things. It's in your face like me. It's a negative first instead of a positive. I think I made a mistake doing it that way. But my reason for doing was not accidental. It was to try and make the customer service experience, the customer experience better. If you read this before you go screwing around with your knife or just leave it sitting in the bottom of the box unseen because you got your cool toy and you got it, you walk away from the packaging. If you read this, you will actually avoid the 12 common things people do to ruin their knife. And I have now helped your life be easier. Less calls, less mail, less returns, less everything. Yeah. That's why I did it. Now, as it turns out, I think it was a mistake and I'm changing it. And I've been doing it that way for years. But as it turns out, it drives everybody crazy that I actually have some terms of warranty and service. It's driven dudes nuts. It's like the number one talked about thing about it's the number about one Medford. complaint is my yeah, warranty. He, yes. Yeah. Everyone talks about, and, oh my God, his, his warranty's not like anybody else's. Why can't he be more like Chris Reeve? I see it all the time in everything people write about you. And, and so when Chris Reeve and I are standing next to each other and I say, hey man, how do you do that? And Because I've had this conversation with him. I said, Chris, how do you do that warranty for life thing? He goes, oh, Greg, I wish I'd never done that. What a fucking pain it's been. 
And, and I, and I said, yeah, I understand. I, I said, I don't do that. And he goes, Oh, don't do it. Whatever you do, don't do it. So I have this warranty. That's just about like everybody else's. The only, the only people in the business who have a, I would say a better warranty than me on paper is Chris Reeve. They're the only ones. And, 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 and react in practice, my warranty is every bit as good as theirs because anytime anybody has any problems, I take care of them. But I do draw the line at dealing with pimpers and tinkerers and that disassembly clause just shuts all that bullshit down big time. Yeah. Listen, I, I, I get it. Right. I, I, uh, you, you gotta know what you stand for and, and, and it, and it's, it's very, very important that um, you do things that make sense. The customer experience is everything. I love Steve Jobs myself. Uh, on day one uh, of uh, our events, we talk about Steve Jobs and, and, and why we have developed our ethos of our company to be like Steve Jobs. The customer experience is everything, and we're all about helping great entrepreneurs just like he is. That's what he talks about. Apple's a company that's here to help people that are crazy enough to think they can change the world do that. And I look at that and I go, those are the people I want as my customers. Those are the people I like to hang around with, guys like you. God bless Steve Jobs. God loves Steve Jobs. I'll tell, yeah. you, I'll tell you something about the knife industry. This is my personal philosophy on knives. I think every man should own a knife, right? Uh, from a masculine point of view, it, it's a tool that, that men have been using forever, ever since there's been a civilization. And in this day and age, every woman should own a knife too. It's a really, it's a really useful tool. And it's something that, you know, owning a nice knife, uh, it gives you a feeling of pride. You know, having a knife can make you feel safer. I'm not saying you should, you should necessarily go carry an, a knife around with you all the time in every city, especially if the knife laws don't allow you for it. Make sure you obey the knife laws in your city. But having a knife is, is, is incredible. It, there's so many things that you can actually do with a knife that make it very powerful and very useful, right? And to me, that kind of messaging, if, if the industry used that kind of messaging more, I think the industry as a whole would grow. I think there's a lot of room for growth in the cutlery industry, right? And it's got big problems in my opinion. And tell me. I've, well, I mean, I've had it out with these guys um, because the guy who owns it now is a Chinese-American dude. He owns the magazine. He owns the industry trade show. And I've confronted him straight up. I go, okay, so we're the next industry who has now gone to outsource our technology and uh, 200 years of hard learned lessons on knife making. We've exported them to China. Now the Chinese are throwing our technology back at our shores with unfair trade practices. You know, this is not, you know, a com complaining Greg because I got problems. This is, I don't have any, I don't have problems, man. My, my company's cranking along. I've carved a niche for myself. But the industry's got problems because it's sold its soul to the devil with this Chinese connection. And um, there's no intellectual protection, which means the only thing us knife companies have is our intellectual property. And, and they've all gotten in bed with a country that doesn't honor intellectual property. It's the number one problem. And we make a product that is labor intensive, not material intensive. And labor intensive products that are intellectual in their nature can be taken by the lowest paying country. They, they just gobble up the whole industry. So the industry sold is sold to the devil. It's hard to recapitalize this type of durable hard good and get that money back into machines and factories. And the guys calling the shots, they're old dudes with 
one hand, the one hand in their pocket is from China. And they're the ones that drive the industry. And I am a, I'm a fly in the ointment. I'm sitting out here going, why is this called the American Knife and Tool Institute if everybody in charge of it does a majority of their production in Asia? Why is this the American Knife and Tool Institute? Why am I donating money to this organization? And, and you know, it's just, you know, it, 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 it's unnerving for everybody. You know, I, I hear what you're saying, and I get that, and that's 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 some that's a problem that's not unique to the knife industry, right? Um, yeah, it, it's one We've of the things that got down the road. Yeah, it's one of the things that got Donald Trump elected, right? <laughs> I mean, uh, he, 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 you know, love him or hate him, the 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 man tapped into a vein of frustration and a vein of anger among workers and among manufacturers. But I will tell you that. The knife industry right now is poised for growth if there's people in the industry that are smart enough to take this. So uh, let me tell you my philosophy on it and why I believe this is so, okay? So we live in an age and a time where men are lost, right? A lot of men don't know what it is to be a masculine man anymore. And the younger men, the millennials, I think we let them down as a generation. And our generation, the generation before us, let these men down because we just surrendered um, when when the women's lib movement came on, uh, its goals were noble. They wanted to you know help women achieve certain rights, and and, and it's a wonderful thing that that uh, you know women can go out and uh, start a business, own a business, take on any job. They're, they're like, I'm a fan of women. I love women. I adore women. And 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 without my lady being in business with me, I wouldn't be where I am today. But a, a lot of men, unfortunately, of that generation started to buy into the story that everything about being a man was wrong and bad, and masculinity is, is by its own nature, uh, flawed. And what this has done is it's made a lot of men and boys feel like there's something wrong with them, right? So traditional masculine virtues are no longer appreciated, no longer extolled in our society. And I think that... There is a huge opportunity to, to help men in general be more in touch with that masculine warrior side of themselves and live life as, as a masculine man. And a masculine man is a man who gets things done, takes care of his family, and, and, and is capable. And, and I believe that there's a lot of men who aspire to that. You know, that whole aspirational model that Steve Jobs created with Apple, you know, where people started off at, uh, with, the, with, with the iPod, which was like cheap, and they go all the way up to the most tricked out iMac, right? Uh, and I think there's a lot of men who want to be that man. And the knife industry is, by its nature, something that appeals to that. And I believe that if the knife industry created a message, you know how the milk industry created Got Milk? Steve Jobs talks about it in one of his marketing videos, you know? I think the knife industry's got to create a message around, you know, got a knife, right? And there'll be a lot of men who'll buy into this. And I, I don't mean the current knife community. I'm talking about people outside the knife community. I think the industry can double and treble in size. If they think about this from a philosophical point of view and they start putting the message out in this fashion, there'll be a lot of men, executives, business people, who'll start buying and owning knives. That's my belief. Well, I don't disagree. It's a fractious the, the China problem is a huge problem, though. And, and the thing is, if the company, if the entire industry is less than a billion dollars in the U.S. and it's bifurcated with this Asian challenge, and we've seen what 
the Chinese connection has done to every industry it's touched. Every industry it touched goes away. It does not come back. Yep. Um, there, there's a battle going on within the community right now. And if Donald Trump gets a second election and he pushes hard enough and gets intellectual protection, uh, then then, then it, it, it's an industry that actually could just be saved without a major reset and go, go, go forward with growth. You know, I believe what you say is partially true. Um, the masculine ideal in more liberal countries is crushed. And uh, they find out how valuable it is when catastrophe strikes. They find out how valuable it is when, uh, you know, countries still do need to go to war. And when the United States isn't footing the bill for everybody, everyone finds – there's a come-to-Jesus moment for everybody coming. Because once once there is evil hegemony, there starts becoming pressures for conflict. And we've been – you know, the United States, for all our faults, we have been a hegemony of of, – a force for good in the world. A force for good and more fairness than the world's ever seen before. And as soon as that 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 goodness, you know, that brand, you know, our red, white, and blue is a brand for goodness. You know, we, we got plenty of plenty of faults. Don't get me wrong, and we're not perfect, and we've screwed up, and we've come in and done it wrong. But we we don't dust off and retract to our shores. We 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 stand up and try to try and make it right and move forward and and, and do it better the next time. And as soon as that is China. Uh, and that's what's going on right now. They do not have the same kind of force for good in their approach to things. Uh, it's very, very different. And, uh, you know, when the world starts to confront that, they're going to wonder what happened. And what happened is death by, death by a thousand cuts and death by politeness and death by, you know, wh- where where feelings trump truth um, is is where, you know, democracy and the republic is lost. No, agreed. That's what happened to to ancient Rome. It's what happened to ancient Greece. Yeah, every yeah, they, empire and our, rises you know, and falls. And and uh, the founding fathers, they were neoclassicists, man. They, they knew were. this. You know, they they, they knew there shouldn't be a vote for all people. Um, they, and 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 I'm not saying we. You know, I, I have this discussion with guys. You know, guys think I'm a big racist or something, and they start some racial conversation with me, and I go, oh, oh, oh hold on a second. I had a guy the other day start this with me and I go, so I go, look, I don't even want to have that discussion with you about, let's say, this race of people. Uh, What are you going to do? There's 80 million of them in the country. What are you going to do? I mean, if that's what you really believe, and let's just say I just concede the argument, what are you going to do? You're going to round them all up, send them to another continent? You're going to kill them all? You're going to say they, they can't vote anymore? I mean, you know, we're doing the only thing we can do, which is rub up against each other and dialogue and scratch each other and try and find some equilibrium where everyone's got an even hand. Even if you think this whole group of people is a subperforming group of people, their only option is to try for equality because every other option leads to evil. Yeah. I, I, listen, I, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I'm a first generation immigrant. Um, and I, in my country, a, a, a Christian, and it was a majority Muslim country. I faced a lot of discrimination. I'm not a fan of discrimination. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, uh, nobody tried to kill me. Thank God ISIS wasn't around when I was there. But uh, uh, what I love about the West, about Canada, the United States, Western Europe, uh, Australia, is that people here are free and we're tolerant of each other. And that's a good and beautiful thing that's got to continue. And I think it's slipping away. Yeah. It's slipping away. You know, I don't know. So yeah, I don't want to get on too much of a tangent with you, but you know, but, and, and that's a part of what we, you know, what I do, and the part of the the spirit behind these knives 
is this, you know, I've said this in marketing over the years. I've said it in my, my ephemera, my written literature about our products and our company. And people maybe who haven't done anything risky in their life don't really get this. But 1% can change everything. And if a person's 1% more confident in combat, it makes a difference between coming home and not coming home sometimes. If they're 1% better, if you're in the upper 98% of Americans or the upper 99%, that 1% is a lot. If having some consummately reliable, tough, rugged knife gives you 1% more confidence sitting in a boardroom, it's why would it? You know, to say that it wouldn't is denying what we know, like a guy wearing a presidential Rolex Swiss watch that gives him a certain strut in a boardroom. It's a, these, there are these talismans of success that would kind of put around us, uh, uh, you know, and folks who haven't worn expensive suits or maybe haven't been in the financial world in New York, they don't get this, but you know, that suit is a body armor. It's a way to walk into a room and steal the room from everybody. You know, having the best tie and shirt combo. There's the reason those guys, you know, for us, for us Westerners, us provincial bumpkins out here who don't get that whole thing, the power suit is not named power suit because it means nothing. It makes a difference. It's how you present and it's your armor by which you dive into your conversations and command a room and take charge of whatever it is. And knives do that, watches do that, a suit does that. The people around you in your life give you that confidence. You know, there's all these things that add up to who we are. I was talking about the ecosystem of us, yeah. the, the ecosystem of Greg. All of this adds up to the one moment I'm having. And anything that can bump a percentage, anything that gets you through the day, puts a smile on your face, anything that makes you feel like you're – God, you know, this is the – I've got my cell phone and when it's quirky and I call somebody and I talk to some ding dong who barely speaks my language and they could care less about helping me, but just forwarding me through to another voicemail of some other department, there's nothing that'll get you more frustrated than that. But when you've got this one thing that you know, you can reach out to them anytime and be like, yeah, what can we do for what happened to your knife? Oh, we'll get it taken care of. No problem. There's just something warming about that. And, you know, I wanted to make sure that we're part of that. You're doing, you're doing great, man. I, I, you make great Thanks, knives. Man. You're, um, the, the quality is there. It's, it, it, it's actually mind blowing how great the quality is, and the designs are are unique, and and I love them. And I think the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because you have a unique philosophy on on how to do business, and there's real thought leadership there. There's an attempt on your part to impart your philosophy in your designs and in what you sell to people and the message you bring out there. So thank you for that. And I love your Medford University. I love the concept so much. I'm going to create an e-circle university to teach similar lessons about how to be a thought leader and a heart leader to our people. And I, and I really oh, cool. enjoyed going through that. So thank you for that. Um, it, it taught me a lot about uh, you know, you, you, all things about knife making. I mean, I sat there going, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, I'd like to like, try making a knife of my own just for myself one day. I'm never going to get into the business. I, I don't have the flair for design or anything like that. But I, I thought it'd be a cool thing for me to try, just to just to be able to tell myself, hey, you know what? I I I developed some skill here that I can use if heaven forbid there ever was. Uh, 
you, you know, the zombie apocalypse or anything came up, I, I wouldn't be a sitting target. And that's a good thing, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I get it, man. They're, they're cool. They speak to our primordial ooze with inside of us deep, deep in the brain. There's something very primal about them. There, there really is. There really is. So, Greg, we like to end off e- each one of our episodes by asking you as our guest expert to share your top three expert action steps, your top three pieces of advice for our listener to take on, to take their business or their life to the next level. So what do you say? Okay. So if I had known this a couple days in advance, I'd have come up with some humdingers because I was actually at another company coaching them yesterday, believe it or not. I do this all the time with companies. Awesome. Um, the first thing I would say is probably one of the most important things to do when you're running a small business or have a small team or a medium-sized team or company or business or whatever, is there is a tendency for everybody to do lots of planning to get started, and then they stop planning. They get started, they get their money, they get their seed, they get going, and then they get caught up in the business of business. And I recommend everybody, you know, your business should only be maybe four or six hours of the day, and then the other... 20 hours. No, kidding. The, 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 the other, you should spend another equal amount of time at the craft of what it is you do. And then you should spend, I think in total about 10% of your day reviewing your current plan and how you're doing. And what people don't do is keep a, a real time plan going, you know, like, Hey, if I meet this goal at the end of the year, I'll have done X. Well, they think that they run a sales report and that's letting them know. And it's much more holistic that there's great software now to give you kind of real time feedback on the pulse of your company. And I think having an ongoing plan is vital to guide you monthly and weekly and and on the way to your annual success. So uh, people have a tendency to stop planning once they're in business. And I would say spend more time planning than you think. Second thing, item number two would be spend more time building the team than you think you need to. I've talked to some Fortune 500 CEOs. My wife, her dad was a Fortune 500 CEO. Cool. Uh, and yeah, he, you know, he had a, you know 35,000 employees and a billion in revenue his last year in business. And, and he's the opposite end of the mouth spectrum. He never says the wrong thing. Really polite, very thoughtful, just great guy. Salt of the earth, Iowa farmer, you know, one of 10 kids. And he and I are eye to eye on so many things. And I'm, I'm the vocal Western, you know, Roy Rogers. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Will Rogers kind of opposite end of the spectrum from him. Uh, but we agree on so much, build your team, spend more time building. You know, he said, Greg, you know, he goes, I always, you know, was so successful. I spent more time building the team, finding smart people to put around me, he said, I spent more time doing that than my contemporaries, my peers. And I, there's, a, there's a tendency to want to just fill a spot and move on. And he goes, I, I, I never did that. I, I really worked to get the right person. And he goes, and, and, and that was, you know, invaluable. Hmm. Uh, so I thought that was salient and it's proved out to be pretty salient for me as well. And then the last thing, and I, I think this is something for anybody who's a boss or has employees. There is a very, um, there's this dichotomy between employees and employers. There's this chasm between us and whether you want it there or not, it's there. 
and media plays on it all day, every day, because it, it's easy to get the masses on your side by playing them against their boss. And HR people who I consider useless warts on the butthole of capitalism, HR people like to have all these little sayings, these little catch sayings, because they're always trying to find talent. And so this is one of the biggest struggling things, especially in this current Trump era of a smoking hot economy. Finding talent to work for companies is one of the most critical things that we all deal with. And it's very easy. Self-analysis has to be part of what we do. We have to be critical of ourselves and do being the best us we can be at all times, right? But we can't listen to these wonks who are on the butthole of capitalism called HR. They do nothing to move the enterprise forward. We can't listen to them when they say people quit bosses, they don't quit jobs, and then change our action. It's not true. If you're thoughtful, if you're doing a great job and you're doing the best you can and your company's at a certain place where maybe you don't have the same competitive benefits or you don't have the same competitive comp, there are other ways to comp people besides health insurance or this, that, and the other. It may not be a concern in Canada, but it is for down here in the, for sure. in the United States. People quit jobs. There's two reasons. One, because it's all about them and they can't own it, so they make it about you. And two, because life happens. That's why people quit jobs. And sometimes they quit their boss. That's true. Those are also the kids who dropped every college class that had a professor they didn't like and whose helicopter parents shuffled them out of every classroom they thought the teacher was too mean from. Those are the same people. <laughs> That's true. You know, I got two sons. One's 11, one's 13. My 13-year-old Man, he's he's more of a man at 13 than I was at 30. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. He's tough as nails. He broke his arm playing soccer, right? I know you Americans make fun of uh, us us folks who play soccer, but he broke his arm. No, we're 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 totally LGBTQ friendly down here. <laughs> so he broke ah. his arm in a soccer game, right? A soccer actually practice. And I was there sitting there because, you know, once a week I got to drive him and his buddies uh, 45 minutes to the to their soccer practice because, you know, they're on this hot team and they got to be driving far. So he breaks his arm. He comes to me at the end. He says, Dad, I, I think I broke my arm. Shows me his arm. Yep, he broke his arm. I said, when this happened, he said, oh, it was 10 minutes. And I said, why don't you tell me? He says, I didn't want you to pull me out. <laughs> I mean, I'm looking at him going, damn, kid, you're tough, you know. Oh, that's and, awesome. Oh, it's, dude, so proud. And then there's my other son who's been through hell, he almost died twice, been in the hospital, but, you know, and, and has is, deals with stuff. But every little thing that happens, right, he, he's like, oh, dad, that hurts. This hurts. That hurts. And I keep telling him, son, you're tougher than this. I know you're tougher than this. But, you know, because he almost died twice, um, his mom, his mom and I aren't together anymore, but, um, she loves him. I love him, but she, 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 she's babied him a little bit, you know, you, yeah, you, yeah, you know, and that's, 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 that's been tough and she yeah. gets it right. She sees it right now. And it, it's important that, that for me and for her right now, thank God we're on the same page with this, that we, we help him be strong, be confident. So, you, you, you know, he's the type of kid who doesn't have to like sit down just because he's feeling a little tired. You know, I, you, I don't have it all figured out, all right? But I have noticed 
like for instance, my daughter, she didn't want this teacher a couple years ago. And she's like, oh, I can, you know, all summer long, she knew she had drawn this teacher. The time came, the first week was brutal. The first month was brutal. And it was like, hey, you know, the wife and she had talked, they want me to go down and have a talk with the teacher. And I said, hey, girls, pump the brakes here. Just let's see what happens. Well, two and a half, you know, because I'm like, hey, so what's he doing that you don't like? Well, all he does is tell me the stuff I'm doing wrong. I go, okay, so he's not praising you enough. Yes. Okay. Okay. Just repeating it out loud so you can hear it. And then what else is it? Well, he's, you know, he's not very funny. I'm like, it's a math class, sweetheart. Uh, he's not there to entertain. He's trying to get you a curriculum here. And, you know, from what I see, your algebra is, you know, crazy for seventh grade. And, and, and so halfway through the school year, he's her favorite teacher. Wow. But the entire first half of the school year, she was squawking because he was holding her intellectually accountable and gave her no little mommy nurturer ease. He's like, look, this is an intellectual endeavor. If you want to be on your phone, go ahead and be on your phone. You're going to miss math class. I got no extra credit for you. If your parents come to me, you're still getting a D or an F. This is the deal. Wow. And so there was no total accountability. And, you know, and, and so the kids all rankled at it. Well, she tested into high school math. She loves him, her favorite teacher, because no time wasted. And she felt like it was time well spent. And at the end, all she got from it, you know, she's got this Russian piano teacher. Same thing. She was really tough, really this, really that. Now she absolutely would take a bullet for this woman. She's been playing piano a year and a half, and she plays like she's been playing for 10 years. And, you know, her peer group in the concert circle are all like, where the hell did she come from? She's got this demanding, hard teacher. So I think of the poet Bukowski, and I think of one of his great lines, one of the beat poets. He said, he said, run, young man, run to the stern hand of your father from the soft hand of your mother. Run. Mm, and I think I about that. that in life all the time. You know, run to the hard. Run to the wave. Push your chin into the wind. You know, that – the universe is this – for me, a knife maker. The metaphor, the universe is a forge and I am but iron. How shall it harden and shape me? I love it. I love it. Oh my God. That's so awesome. Okay. That's my, uh, those are parting thoughts for the day. No, those are awesome. So, so Greg, <laughs> I love, I love your Medford university. So listener, you, you, you know, if, if, if knives and collecting knives intrigues you in any way, you got to go check out Medford university. It's medforduniversity.com. And um, it's a whole bunch of videos teaching you the A to Z or the A to Z if you're in Canada of knife making. It's fascinating. It'll teach you a lot. But if you're in business for yourself as a thought leader, a potential thought leader, it's actually an instructive way to engage with your customers and potential customers. I love that so much. I'm going to create East Circle University for us to have our potential customers be able to engage with us and learn about what we do and how we help people and all that good stuff. So Medford University is it. And what's really cool about Medford University, right, is you become what's called a centurion, right, Greg? And then you get all kinds yeah. of cool offers and benefits because of it, right? Right, right. So, and then there's Medford Knives. Medford Knife and Tool is an iconic company. You know, the knives aren't for everybody and they're not the cheapest knife on the block. 
I'll tell you, but they are fantastic knives. I highly recommend them. I own a Proxima. I'm getting a Praetorian tie. Uh, I, I spoke with Amy yesterday, Greg, and she's helping move oh the design process forward. Um, I like Amy, man. I, I feel I kind of know her because I've like watched like 30 of her videos, right? <laughs> I mean, just like, yeah. hi, this is Amy Medford with Medford Knife and Tool, and this is today's order going to DLT trading. You know, I'm just like listening. To yeah, you know, I everyone. basically, I don't, I, all I do is I know I have to work hard because I used up all my luck when I got her because there was none coming for the lottery on me. You know, I got it with her. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's a great lady, man. She's a great lady. You can tell. And uh, I'll tell you, the, 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 you guys make incredible tools. And um, if you're listening to the show and you are interested, you want to, like, buy some knives, first of all, go watch the Hello Trouble ad and then go buy a Medford. <laughs> That's what I have to say. So Thanks, man. Yeah, no, my pleasure. My pleasure. And if you're thinking to yourself, okay, Nikki, you, br- you brought, you brought this, 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 this fellow on the show, Greg Medford, and obviously he's a deep thinker. He's a thought leader in his own way, even though he makes products, he doesn't sell services. How can I be someone like Greg who has my own independent identity, who has a powerful personal brand? And simple, go to Nikki360.com, N-I-C-K-Y 360.com. And there's going to be a pop-up with a webinar masterclass. This masterclass is going to show you soup to nuts, six key principles, which you can take into your business to help you stand out, help you be known as that go-to person, help you be sought after, be notable, as Greg Medford would put it. Okay, so make sure you go check that out. And then jump on a call with myself. Go to eastcircleacademy.com, click on the button in the top right-hand corner in the center of the page. And let's have an honest conversation about what you're trying to do with your life, with your business. What are the things that have gotten in your way? And um, I'll give you a roadmap. And the cost for that's absolutely free. Absolutely free. Okay, Greg, thanks so much for being on the show, my friend. This was one of my favorite interviews. God bless. Oh, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Greg Medford of Medford Knife and Tool, go to the show notes at thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. Go there and you can find out all the information about Medford University and about how, how to pick up a Medford knife. Until next time, goodbye.